uh, one day I was just sitting at my desk and I had a tap on my shoulder. I turned around and there's Dan Egan. He's like, hey, Eric, Dan Egan. And I was like, yeah, hi, Dan. How are you doing? Uh, he's like, time to chat now. And uh, went up to the cafeteria at the old Globe building and uh, chatted for a good hour, hour and a half. And, uh, you know, it was there that, you know, I started to realize what a wealth this guy is. You know, the local boy's done good. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Got a great conversation for you today with one of the Northeast's top ski journalists. Before we get to that, a reminder to go subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. There is a lot going on in the storm aside from the podcast, especially right now with all the season passes rolling out and especially with Vail making the big Epic Pass announcement this coming Tuesday, March 23rd. You'll get an in-depth look at that and a whole lot more in the newsletter. For more frequent updates, follow along on Twitter at Stormski Journal. First, let's talk about my partners, Ellie Hansen and Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a biannual, large format print title celebrating mountain culture. The crew is wrapping up work on issue 195 and it is loaded. We've got a spring skiing gallery by legendary Alta-based photographer Lee Cohen, a Q&A with New Hampshire governor and Waterville Valley owner Chris Sununu, an exclusive look at the first chapter of Home Waters, a spiritual sequel to Norman McLean's A River Runs Through It, written by his son John, a profile of mountaineer Arlene Bloom, written by Ingrid Backstrom, and the return of the jaded local who comes over from Powder Magazine. And that is just the start. This thing will be loaded with photos and stories from mountain towns around the country. Look, we told you last time that issue 194 would sell out, and it did. Demand for the magazine is high. We expect this issue to sell out as well. Do not miss out. Head over to mountaingazette.com and enter code GOHIRE10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions. Use code EASTCOAST, all one word, for 10% off everything else including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. Mountain Gazette, when in doubt, go higher. You all know conditions in the Northeast can be unpredictable. And if you ski every week, like my family does, you need to be prepared for anything, especially this year when your car is your base lodge. That's why we are rocking Heli Hansen gear from head to toe to keep us warm and dry, no matter what mother nature throws at us. Ellie Hansen gear is ready for anything because professionals who brave the world's harshest environments have been integral to the development of the brand's gear. We've got spring break coming up out here in New York and I am taking my daughter skiing for the week. In the Northeast in March, we could get anything from snow to ice to rain to sunshine. Whatever mother nature brings, we will be ready because she is gearing up in the Junior Sapphire Jacket and Junior Summit Big Pan. The jacket is insulated and waterproof a slightly longer fit for extra warmth and a life pocket to help keep her phone battery from draining while we ski. The Summit Big Pants have elastic suspenders, a brushed tricot inside seat for extra warmth, and a reinforced hem and inner leg for extra durability. And both have a tough Helitech weatherproof outer layer, specially designed for the harshest conditions. If you want to get yourself new gear or you know someone who needs to refresh their kit, visit the Heli Hansen in Boston or Burlington, Vermont, and mention this Storm Skiing Podcast ad to get 18.77% off. Why 18.77%? Because that's the year they were founded. That's right, more than 140 years ago. Episode 41, Eric Wilbur, 
co-author of 30 Years in a White Haze with Dan Egan. Who are your ski heroes? The people who do the things that just amaze you on a pair of sticks. The ones you follow on social. The ones that, when they drop an edit, you watch it 200 times. If you're from a certain generation, Dan Egan was at the top of your list. He starred in 14 Warren Miller films, including, actually, the latest, Future Retro. He's an amazing skier and, actually, a really talented businessman, too, with a really interesting life story. He lays the whole thing out in his new book, 30 Years in a White Haze, co-authored with my guest today, Eric Wilbur. Now, as most of you know, I don't interview many skiers in this podcast. It's not that I don't love what they do. It's just not really my brand. Low Pressure Podcast is where you want to go for conversations with big-name skiers. He does a really good job with those. Out of Bounds Podcast hosts some skiers on there as well. So check both of those out. The Storm Skiing Podcast, though, mostly focuses on people who run ski areas and people who talk about them. So journalists. And Eric Wilbur is one of the best ski journalists in the Northeast. He runs the online edition of New England Ski Journal, and he did an incredible job helping Dan tell his story. Let's hear it. My guest today is the co-author of 30 Years in a White Haze, a new book documenting the life and adventures of extreme skiing pioneer, award-winning video producer, journalist, motivational speaker, and author Dan Egan. He is the online editor for New England Ski Journal. He has also produced or written for Fox Sports, New England Sports Network, Boston Globe, Boston.com, and Metro Boston. Eric Wilbur is my guest. Eric, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Stuart. This is great. First of all, a huge congratulations on publishing this book. It was a massive project. How does it feel to be at the point where this thing is finally on the shelves? You know, it was uh, it was funny, actually, uh, seeing the book in print for the first time on last Tuesday when it came in the mail uh, was, you know, I, I told my wife it was my my George McFly moment. You know, I opened the box. <laughs> right. And was my book and, you know, kids, if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. Um <laughs> But it was great, you know, and, and to see the book in an actual, you know, I know you, you read the, uh, the PDF copy we had, uh, but to see the book in print and see the, uh, the illustrations and the color photos and the worldwide map detailing everywhere Dan has skied, uh, it was really kind of surreal, you know, to, to have that book in my hands after two years of such um, hard work and, and, and trying to get it done. Um, you know, it was, it's a special moment. I'm really proud of it. and and. To, to do it with someone like Dan uh, really was, you know, su- such a, uh, a life-changing um, aspect to, uh, to everything I've done. And, and you know, it's, it's up there, uh, probably at the top of the list of, of moments in my journalism career. Well, it's a great book. It's a tremendous read. I did read the digital version, as you said. Um, I'm really a paper guy, so I, I'm going to order a hard copy. I can't wait to see that and see the pictures in full color. Uh, so how long have you known Dan, Eric, and how did you guys first meet? You know, it's funny. I first met him. It was a good introduction to what Dan is like in any way. Um, it was 2015. I was doing a feature uh, for Boston.com and the Egan Brothers. And, uh, and John is easy to get to, you know, John, you, you go to Sugarbush or used to go, be able to go to Sugarbush and see him. Um, you know, and, and we, we chatted for a good two hours down in the Castle Rock pub. Um, and Dan was a little harder to get because Dan's in Montana or he's in France or he's you know, <laughs> all over the world. And, um, you know, it was tough to try and pinpoint him down. So the feature kind of held off for a little bit until I could speak to him. Uh, one day I was just sitting at my desk and I had a tap on my shoulder. I turn around and there's Dan Egan. He's like, Hey Eric, Dan Egan. 
And I was like, <laughs> yeah, hi, Dan. How you doing? Uh, he's like, time to chat now? And I'm like, so there's Dan just at the office. Right. And, uh, went up to the cafeteria at the old Globe building and uh, chatted for a good hour, hour and a half. And, uh, you know, it was there that, you know, I started to realize what a, uh, you know, a wealth this guy is. And not just not just Dan, but Dan and John and, and, and that tandem of the Egan brothers. Um, you know, I, I watched Warren Miller movies all the time when I was in college. And, you know, the Egan brothers were synonymous with doing that. You know, the local boys done good. So to actually have the story and craft it with, the, with those two um, was a pleasure. And I know based on their reaction that they really appreciated what I wrote that time. Um, and after that, Dan, I, I would hear from both of them, you know, periodically. Dan would contact me and ask me, you know, one time he, had, he was covering a sailing race in um, the Volvo Ocean World Cup and wanted me to come cover it for Boston.com. So he sent me out with press passes and all that, got on a sailboat. Um, he's really kind of kept me in the in the forefront of people he wants to deal with in the journalism field. Um, and so, you know, we just kind of, you know, created a relationship out of that. Um, you know, a periodic, you know, hey, Dan, it's Eric. Hey, hey Eric, it's Dan, you know, back and forth. Um, that really kind of led up into what we did today. So you published that piece together and, and developed this relationship, as you said. When did the idea actually come up for this autobiography? It was after I, I took a buyout from the Globe in 2016. You know, it was a right time, right, right place and right money. Um, still right for them, but it was, you know, as a full-time job to take the buyout just made sense at that period. Um, and during that time, I was, you know, feeling out my freelance career as well and contacted him and said, hey, I, you know, I'm thinking about what a biography of, of you and John would look like. And he got back to me and said, yeah, I've already got the, the kind of outline here. And he actually sent me a few pages that looked like he had, you know, an idea of what this book would be. Uh, and then in Dan's words, you know, he said kind of like, I got this taken care of, but if I need help, I'll let you know. So I think about a year and a half went by and Dan contacted me again and said, yeah, I need help. So <laughs> We uh, ended up sitting down in the beginning of 2019, and I, I think my vision at first for this book was kind of, you know, wacky Egan Brothers antics and, you know, looking at other biographies that have been done in sports, you know, a lot of them are really shallow. And I, I, I didn't really, not that I'm, you know, criticizing them, but I think that that's what I was seeing for this too, you know, just kind of like a general sports biography book of the Egan Brothers. Um, and sitting down with Dan that first day, it was uh, it was pretty clear that this was going to be a different sort of book uh, based on his experiences and his travails and whatnot. And, um, you know, at that point, it became clear to me, like, I've got to write this book. Mm -hmm. So what did Dan have written? What, what did he come to you with? And and based on what he had, how did you think you could help him fully flesh this out into something else? You know, he had the ideas of the history of skiing. And, and, and the one thing that he had that I really focused on was he had a connection to the ski market in Boston. Now, if you know Boston, the ski market was like the place to go get skis in, in New England. Um, you know, New England really has, you know, a lot more skiers per capita than anywhere else in the country, which is a stat that I found last year. And I found crazy. 
And so a place like like Ski Market really, really was was blossoming at that point. Uh, Dan started working there. His brother Bob worked there. And through that, he met a whole bunch of, you know, ski reps. And that those reps ended up helping them later on in the career when he went to ski shows trying to sell his and John's movies. Um, that was one thing that really he really had. One thing he didn't have was his whole his whole bit in Elbrus. Um, you know, he got lost on Mount Elbrus and uh, had a moment where he almost died. And it was a really strong part of his life that he didn't have in that original outline. Uh, when we sat down for that first time, it was clear that that was going to be a centerpiece of the book. Uh, so, it, you know, it was much, it was more so, really what happened was, he told me that Elbrus story. I went home and I started writing and I wrote, the prologue as Dan is lost on Elbrus and I sent that to him. And that was sort of like the leaping off point for everything else that came after that. That was going to be the centerpiece of this book. Uh, you know, it wasn't just going to be the wacky tales of John and Dan. It was going to be this, you know, soul searching uh, book with, with highs and lows and the book has plenty of them. So let's talk about that process a little more. That's really interesting. So he told you the story, you went, wrote it down, you sent it back to him. I'd imagine there's some back and forth. In general, take us through your process. Was that kind of a template you established? You would interview Dan, you would get the details, then you would go back, uh, go into your writing cave, write it, send it back to him. Take us through that whole thing. Yeah, well, that first, pro, the prologue I wrote first, um, and I sent it off to him, and I didn't hear back with, from him for a good week or so. And I started getting nervous. I'm like, well, he hates it. So let's move on to the next project. Um, and he loved it, right? So it kind of just went through that. Like Dan and I, and Dan is not an easy person to get, right? To sit down with because he's, like I said, in Montana or France or whatever. And from that, we just, you know, we, we carved out uh, time that we could sit down and talk. And what Dan did so well is his descriptive nature I told him this last week, actually, that there's one at one point where he's on El Bruce and he has to get a rope from um, some other Russian climbers. And he's I can vision him detailing me this story in a TJ Fridays in Braintree as he's pulling <laughs> the rope to me. Right. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it's those things that I took and was able to visualize what he was seeing. That's not always easy to do because, look, I wasn't on Mount El, El Bruce. I wasn't at Squaw Valley. Um, I didn't go to Babson College. So to be able to write these things and for him to be able to say, yes, that's great. That's a great assessment of it, uh, was obvious. It made obvious our connection, right? That we had something going on where he said something and I could realize what was important to him and whatnot. Um, again, when I would write something uh, that he didn't get back to me for a week or so, that's after a while, I could tell that that meant it was emotionally affecting him. Uh, and there are a lot of points in the book, particularly when we write about his old, his uh, former wife uh, and his divorce. I knew that I wasn't going to hear from him for a while after right. writing, and I didn't. And it, it wasn't. It was. It was that original feeling of he's not getting back to me because he hates it turned into this is actually working. Because the longer he took, the more I actually tapped into him. Um, so that was very special. Uh, he, you know, wrote certain points of the book himself, and we collaborated on, on where 
those fit into the entire narrative. And it was a, you know, in terms of a team effort, it really was that, that Dan, you know, wrote this from his heart and telling me the stories. And I was able to relay those in a way that spoke true to his experiences. Yeah. One of the achievements of the book, Eric, from my point of view was, uh, really giving us a deeper look at Dan's character beyond the way that most of us know Dan, which is bouncing through the snow in Warren Miller movies, right? And you were able to capture the layers of the individual and the struggles he had and the character he had and the resilience he had and the perseverance he had. Um, the, the way that you tell that story about him taking a while to get back, it, it gives us another layer of emotion and, and, and resonates in, in the same way that those that his character does throughout the book. So it's really interesting to hear all that. Um, how much time do you think that you spent with Dan over the course of these two years? Oh God. Um, days, you know, if I, had to, if I had to put it in, in hours, probably maybe, maybe a good 48 hours of sitting down in person, maybe another 48 hours of being on the phone. Um, you know, it, it, it was never hard to meet Dan, right? Because you knew you're in for an hour or two of some great storytelling. Uh, and, and that always drove me that, you know, hey, Dan, let's meet up. Hey, Dan, let's meet up. Um, you know, and I remember in particular, it was at uh, the Collegiate Sailing Championships down in Newport. And he was covering them for, for Deegan Media. And we sat down there. It was a windhold, which was great. Mm-hmm. for us because we get to sit there and we sat there for probably a good three or four hours on a picnic table there. And that was when we discussed Elbrus and the step-by-step process of what that was like for him. And a friend of his actually came over, sat down next to us and he was as riveted as I was, you know, listening to this story. And I was like, don't tell anyone it's going to the book. But you know, those moments were, were very special in that, here I am, you know, sitting at on the oceanside, kids getting ready to sail, and I'm talking to Dan Egan about Elbrus getting lost 30 years ago. Uh, those are memories and visions that, you know, I have all those words on recording because I have to transcribe everything, but I can remember every, you know, motion he made as he was telling that story, every emotion he had uh, when he got angry or when he got agitated over not something I said, but suggesting something. And he would be like, no, it wasn't like that at all. This is why. Right. Um, you know, so hours and hours and hours with Dan, not the worst thing in the world, because every time I, knew, I, I sat down with him, I knew I was going to get something valuable. It sounds like you got a lot out of the body language and just the being in his presence. I'm not sure where you were at in this book last March when COVID shut everything down. Uh, but how did the arrival of COVID change either your process or the timeline for this book or the way that you and Dan would interact? It was a game changer. And I mean that in a good way because, you know, Dan is in Montana or he's in France, right? And it's hard to pin him down. And so March came along and Dan was in Montana filming for Warren Miller. And then he drove cross country and was in New Hampshire home. So that gave meant he wasn't going to France for his annual trip to Val d'Isere. And it gave him a lot more time to sit on the phone and talk with me. And I think that really pushed things forward a lot because the book was, if I had to guess, it was probably about halfway done last March. Um, you know, but with him being always available really helped push the process. And in that, 
you know, on my end, it was also easy because I wasn't, I, you know, I, I teach uh, part-time high school broadcast journalism and I wasn't in the building every day. So I had a lot more time to sit down and talk with him or talk with, you know, other characters are in the book. And I think that really helped, you know, we had a deadline, you know, of, well, originally we had a deadline that was unrealistic. Dan wanted to have this book at the Boston Ski Show in November of 2019. And we first okay. met in 2019 and they're like, uh, no, dude. <laughs> so, you know, I think we had a deadline of last summer and we really kind of he- held to that. You know, it was, it went from like last July to last August to last September and by September, the book was, you know, in the editor's hands and we felt pretty comfortable. So, you know, without COVID, I think we would have pushed through somehow. Um, you know, I know there was talk of me actually going out to Montana or going to France to actually sit down with him, which kind of upset that didn't happen. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, I, it really did help, you know, kind of help him put a pause on everything he had to do with his ski clinics and whatnot. And give him sort of a, you know, a focus on this book and and getting it done with me. So, you know, without COVID, we'd probably still get it done. But with COVID, it was a heck of a lot easier. You know, the the co-author relationship is really interesting here. I think a lot of times you see these situations and and it's an athlete and a journalist. Uh, But Dan actually brings quite a lot to the table because he has also acted as a journalist for so long in quite a few capacities. So talk a little bit, Eric, about how you complemented one another in the writing process. What were your respective strengths here? Well, you know, I think, first of all, the respective strengths were that that Dan, first of all, knew how to storytell. Well, he knew the stories he had to tell. Let's put it that way. And I don't think he knew how to arc the story, right? He didn't know how to go from beginning to end. And that was a challenge for me sometimes too, because it's so rich, right? And there's so much going on that, you know, especially with his growing up in in Boston, there's just so much history there with him, him and his grandfather and, you know, all his brothers and sisters. And it, there's just so much going on that it's tough to try and narrow it down. Um, and I think in some points, you know, maybe we should have done a better job of, do, of doing that. But I also think that to sacrifice some of that would have been, you know, unfair to Dan and, and his heritage and his family. Um, so, you know, what Dan knew in terms of the stories he had to tell was great. I had to try and turn that into an arc. And I wasn't completely sure how to do that. You know, I, I had the prologue um, of him in Elbrus. And actually, side note, you know, back in September, I suggested to him, you know, on an editor's suggestion that we start somewhere else. And I suggested to him, like, why don't we start with the shoot in Montana that you did for Warren Miller? Since that movie is coming out, you know, in November, we can actually tie that in. And he looked at me and he was like, you want to cut the prologue? (laughs) And I was like, yeah. And I think, you know, what followed were a couple swears and like, don't you dare. (laughs) So (laughs) that's when I realized what he really cared about the book or about the prologue. Um, but getting back to the story arc, you know, it wasn't until I went to, uh, Park City, Utah with him for the Hall of Fame induction in 2019, he was the MC, And it was there that I, you know, I, I saw something, right. I saw that there was a beginning here where Dan was being inducted into the Hall of Fame a few years earlier. And now he is as the MC, right. And, and this whole arc just all of a sudden came to me. And 
that was important because I think with Dan telling his stories and me being able to put them in some sort of frame is how we work together so well. Yeah, I really like that as a narrative device, the way that you wrapped it around the Elbrus. Can you, without giving too much away, can you talk about why was that such a defining or maybe the defining moment in Dan's life? And, and I think you got to it a little bit when, when you when you told us his reaction when you were talking about cutting it. But what, what can you tell us about that event and what it meant to Dan and why it was so pivotal? Well, you know, he said he says he saw the light. Um that he was uh, on the verge of dying and that he was saved by, you know, what he called a six foot four Russian coming into his snow cave. And a lot of these times we hear celebrities or athletes or saying they saw the light, quote unquote. Uh, and that's all we get, right? We've got to envision what it is. This is another way that Dan's storytelling really came out so well is that he was able to compare what he saw to what he saw in a movie. Um, the, the shack. And he said, that's what he saw. You know, that's the vision he had. And he remembers, you know, people he spoke with and things that he wanted, you know, that he wanted to go to a Seven Eleven and get a hot dog or something. Um, those weird memories he had. And that was such a defining moment for him because it was, you know, one, he was on the verge of death and he had to fight for himself to get back. He wasn't following along with what everyone else wanted to do. Um, and he and his small band of brothers uh, finally made their way down. I, I don't think it's spoiling anything to say that they made it out of the mountain alive. Right. <laughs> right. So right. it is, it is really a, um, it's a story that no one's really told, you know, this, this tragedy on Mount Elbrus, you know, for all the mountaineering books we get, this one hasn't really been fleshed out that much. Uh, and the whole, situation surrounding it with you know novices climbing this place uh was really just kind of bizarre you know the, the way it was all set up um it's also i think defining in terms of his relationship with john that we see a real rift here between the two and that's not something we ever see on film and it's definitely something that existed throughout their their careers their lives etc um, so I think in that regard, one, Dan has this life-changing moment in, you know, that he almost dies, but two, it's also one of the first times we see this, um, real tension between the brothers that has, um, really goes on throughout the entirety of the book. Uh, but there's still, you know, no question how much they love each other and how much they respect each other. But look, it's a sibling rivalry always has been, always will be. And I think it, it really shines or you know, not shines, but comes to light in the Elbrus expedition. It's interesting. You said earlier that you had approached Dan about doing an autobiography of Dan and John. But what we yep. have is an autobiography of Dan. So uh, how did that go from your proposal of uh, a brother's biography to a Dan biography? Because I think Dan had so much to tell on his own. That was um, not necessarily Dan and John, right? And I think when I looked up I looked up biographies of brothers and one that I came to was the Mayer brothers. And it was not necessarily a biography, but it was a how to skate. And I tried to figure out how I could do this with both of them. Um, but when I sat down with Dan for that first time, it kind of became clear that this was his story. Uh, John has another story to tell, right? And John's story is, uh, is going to be a biography on its own. You know, he already has the title set up. I think he knows where he wants to go with it. But in terms of the Egan brothers as a biography, 
I don't think it was going to work, you know, because they're both such rich personalities that to really tell their story as a duo is, again, going to cheapen the process. It's going to be very shallow. Um, I think in this regard, with Dan as the focus, it's able to tell his own story of personal triumph, of, uh, you know, his connection to religion, his uh, sobriety, his uh, dealing with bankruptcy and divorce. And I think these are all really big points in Dan's life that would have been kind of glossed over if it was, quote unquote, the Egan brothers, you know, because then we're just we're talking about the wild and crazy adventures. And I think in this regard, it was a much deeper look at an individual. So it's an autobiography, Eric, but interesting that it's told in the third person rather than the first person. Talk mm-hmm. about what led you and Dan to that choice. Well, I read, I wrote the autobiography, I mean, the, the, uh, the prologue in the third person as the first per- piece I wrote. I don't necessarily know why I did it that way. I just did it that way. And Dan liked it because, well, Dan liked it as we moved along. You know, I kept writing in the third person. He liked that because it was able, he was able to kind of take a step back and he was able to let the book speak for its own, right? And what I mean by that is I was able to speak with people like John and Mihaela Farah, his ex-wife, uh, people that would, if Dan brought them into the book, may not be as honest uh, or as forthcoming as they were with me. Uh, and that was, you know, special to him because then he was able look like when I wrote the divorce piece he was able to sit back and kind of process what his ex-wife had said because you know Mickey I'll put it this way when I sat down with John um, last summer he had you know asked well who else you talking to for the book and I gave him a list of people and I said Mickey his ex-wife and he looked at me and started laughing he's like Mickey? you're going to talk to Mickey and I said yeah and he started laughing more he's like yeah good luck with that <laughs> And that was kind of the the process, I think, that if Dan had told this book himself, you know, trying to nail down his ex-wife who hasn't spoken to him in years, she wouldn't be part of it. So I think telling it in the third person allowed people like her to be in this and to be an honest part of it, right? Not to tell just Dan's point of view, but to tell uh, what other people had experienced with Dan. And that, at times, was hard for Dan, right? Because... It's not always easy to have people criticizing you in a book um, that is meant to be your autobiography, right? That you have a byline. So, you know, credit to him for, for being brave enough to do that. Um, and I will tell you that it did cause some problems in, in the very end when we went to, we originally had one publisher or, you know, a, a distributor mm-hmm. and the editor could not get over the point, the point that it was third person. You know, okay. felt it really needed to be by Dan Egan with Eric Wilbur and needed to be in the first person. And Dan fought it. He fought it tooth and nail because of what we just discussed, that he liked the fact that he was able to sit back and let the book breathe and have people talk about things that he would never say himself. Uh, so we inevitably went to a different distributor uh, because Dan just felt so much more comfortable with the way this was done. It brings up so many interesting pieces of putting this together, Eric. It's it's such a complex dynamic of folks. And, and I think readers always have to ask themselves, you know, how objective is this? How real is this? How filtered is this? The, the bit you bring up about 
Dan's ex-wife. It's that speaks to a lot of these things. So, so you go off, you interview her and then you come back to Dan and I'd imagine that's something, like you said, he had to sit with, right? Because you're, right. you're, you're seeing the words of someone you had this very intimate relationship with a very, uh, you know, personally tragic ending to that relationship. And, and then he's hearing from her fr- th- through a medium through you for the first time in years. Uh, how did he react to that? How, how did you process that and put it in the book? And, and how much did you have to convince him to put in some things that may not have been flattering, that may not have been what he wanted to hear or, or how he wanted reality to be, but it was allowing her, her point of view and, and, and her part of the story. You know, with Dan, it was, I'd like to say it wasn't easy, but with Dan, it was easy uh, because I think he saw the end product um, for what it should be and the honesty that it was going to take to, to write this book and to make, make it successful. Um, that was definitely, like I said, that was one of the pieces I wrote that I didn't hear from him for a while because he had to process it. Um, but I think that makes the book stronger in that regard is that we've got people here talking that he wouldn't write about personally. If he put pen to paper, he wouldn't be writing and, and saying, I, 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 um, by allowing them in the book, that space to speak, it really does speak to um, sort of the general sense of how Dan is perceived. And, you know, Dan took it. He, he, he has, Dan is an ego, obviously, but I think his ego also allows him uh, to let people in. And I think, you know, credit to him that he let me in and by letting me in and knowing what the situation was and how this was going to end up, uh, takes a lot of courage, you know, no matter how much your ego is or how big your ego is, that you've got to have a lot of courage and a lot of faith in the person that's doing this. And, you know, I, I, I thank Dan to no end that he had that faith in me because um, it, it takes a lot. And, and for him to have that in me speaks so much about our relationship and how much he trusts me. And, you know, I, I can't thank him enough. That really all gets to one of the big themes in the book, and there's several, and, and we'll go through them. But uh, family is is very much a top line piece of this book, and you re- you did a really amazing job, Eric, in describing Dan's big boisterous family growing up in Boston. Um, he has a, a sometimes traumatic history, but you really brought it to life. Talk about what family means to Dan and how you were able to understand those relationships on on a deep enough level across many generations to bring them to life for the reader. Yeah, that wasn't easy. It was uh, <laughs> probably the most difficult part of the book I had because, um, you know, look, you're you're walking into someone's childhood, which is, you know, 40 years ago. And how do you try to envision that and put it to paper? Uh, not very easy at all. But I think what what Dan did and what his, you know, his siblings did and his mom did was able to outline something for me really well that I was able to kind of understand what this rich family life was like. Um, you know, Dan's dad is obviously a big part of the book. Um, and I think he was, I can only imagine if I'd spoken to him, what changes would be made in the book because he's such a, a towering presence in terms of um, how he tutored the, the kids to sail and how he tutored them to ski and how, you know, some kids liked this and some kids didn't like this. And how it was, you know, how Dan turned into the varsity side of things. And John was the rebel. 
you know, I, I can only imagine what, what Robert would, would say in a book like this, but that sort of presence also was so strong in that I couldn't talk to him that I had to only go on what his children and his, uh, his wife were saying about him. Right. And I think that helped out a lot because I was able to not put words in his mouth, but I was able to kind of craft this character, uh, without ever having to met him. Now, Dan's siblings are a big part of the book as well. Uh, you know, Bob in particular, because Bob is the older brother. And, you know, in terms of that whole business side of things, you know, in the ski market and whatnot, Bob was really a big, a big uh, catalyst in all that. Uh, Dan's family means a lot to him, obviously. And, and they are, you know, this, this Irish family from Boston. So there's um, such a... I don't want to say cliche, but there's a uh, narrative around them that is so strong and, and deeply rooted in the city uh, that it was important for him to tie that into uh, everything that goes on after. You write a lot about Bob and a lot about John. I'm curious how much time you spent with each of those brothers and if they had an opportunity to react to some of these things. Um, because obviously it's told, you know, it's third person, but it's Dan's point of view. Were there times when, when you let them see some of these passages and say, Hey, is this how you remember it? What's your point of view on this? Just to get their reaction, um, as you were talking to them. No, um, you know, one, because one is a journalist, you know, I don't want to show my, my copy before I go to print, right. It's just kind of the way it is. You know, I, I don't, it's not a mean thing. It's just that's the way journalism is. I'm, I don't want you to read something and say, no, 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 this is the, the way it goes. Um, if it was a misquote, that's one thing. But that's my responsibility to not make those mistakes. Um, no, you know, because I think on the one hand, John is so forthcoming and so honest and whatever about things. I don't think there's anything in the book that he's really going to look at and say, you know, I wish you hadn't printed that because if you're sitting down with me, I got a recorder in front of you. Uh, it's pretty clear that what you say, unless you say off the record, is going to go in the book. So it wasn't like there was any kind of proofs or anything like that. There are a couple sections that I you know, said to Dan. I'm like, I don't know if I'm comfortable. I wrote it, but I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with this. And in some instances, those went. In some instances, those stayed. Um, but as far as, you know, asking people if they were comfortable with, you know, what they, they told us, it's kind of like, you know, unless you tell me it's off the record, it's off the record. Look, we don't want to make anyone look bad, but at the same time, you know, there's got to be a level of honesty in this book. Otherwise, you know, what are we doing? So I, I think that, you know, if anyone feels they come across in a negative light, that's definitely not uh, the intention. Uh, but, you know, in terms of, do we want to, to vet it out before we go to, to print? Uh, I'd like to say no, unless it's something that's so controversial that we really need to have you know someone's eyes on it, look at it again and make sure that everything's accurate. Um, and that's my job to make sure that everything's accurate. Yeah. From a reader's point of view, it seemed very fair. I think in particular, because Dan was quoted so extensively, how much time did you actually spend with Dan and um, in, in talking through and just interviewing him? Oh, many hours, many, many hours, you know, um, you know, whether it was in person or on the phone, I kind of miss our sessions, you know, because we'd go, go to dinner and just the, um, the waiter or the waitress would come over and just ask us if there's anything else we want. 
and they would come over five or six times <laughs> there and sitting there and sitting there. Um, it was a joy to sit with Dan. I, I can't wait to, you know, sit with him for the next project, uh, whenever that may be, uh, whenever he gets down with his time, I'm sure that would be in the spring or summer and, and sitting down and, and chipping away at that. Are you going to write his autobiography with him? With, with John, uh, John, I don't know, you know, John, it's, it, it, it's something I may bring up to him, but I would have, have to ask Dan first, you know, I, it's kind of weird to say, okay, Dan, I've done your biography. Now I'm moving on to your brother. Um, I think that, you know, first Dan and I have another project to do. And then, you know, if Dan says it's okay, then maybe I approach John and say, Hey, what do you think about doing this? Is there anything you can tell us about that other project you have coming up with Dan? Yes. Uh, Dan wants to write a book uh, called entitled dying to ski. Um, and it's about, you know, all the people we've lost dying skiing as he puts it, the Red Bull generation and how, um, you know, the risks we take in order to, to do this passion that we love and how it has cost these people their lives. I know he has a, a list of, I don't know, I want to say 15, 20 skiers that he wants to include in the book. Um, you know, I, I envision as maybe mini biographies of sorts. Um, but this is something Dan's passionate about is this Red Bull, you know, the very first meeting we had, he's like, I can't believe Red Bull hasn't been sued yet. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that pushing the limits sort of thing is, you know, something they obviously did as, as skiers on their own right, but how it's become this money-making thing now and how it's uh, such a big business to be on the Red Bull team and risking your life and how that has, you know, not to just put red, only Red Bull in the, in the crosshairs there, but that there is more, bigger, better, faster. And that has really led to, you know, a lot more risks than I think have ever been taken um, in the past. And, and I think that it's going to be an interesting read for sure. It's going to be an interesting uh, way to look at things and an interesting dynamic in, and because Dan, you know, knows and and has dealt with many of these people and has lost a lot of his friends as well. So it's going to be interesting to to get that kind of perspective on um, the other side of skiing. You know, not so much the glory, but uh, the death and the and the end. And and what are we doing here? How far are we pushing things? It's a fascinating sounding project, and and it gets to one of the things that I most enjoyed about this book which was tracing the history of the modern ski experience. So you kind of start with the hot dogging freestyle movement in the seventies and, and why that didn't really work out and why it fizzled. And then you get to Squallywood and the extreme skiing in the eighties and nineties. How much of that did you already know, Eric? And how much of this did you learn as you're writing the book and you're talking to Dan and researching the history? Well, I mean, I knew it, but I didn't really know it. You know, I, I knew about hot dog and I knew about Wayne Wong and I knew about the big thing at Waterville Valley. Um, and obviously I knew about extreme skiing and, and Scott Schmidt and Warren Miller and Greg Stump and Glenn Plake. Um, but I didn't really know a lot of the background history of it. Right. Uh, where Dan says, you know, VHS or YouTube is the VHS of today. And I think that's a great uh, assessment, uh, in comparing the two, right. On demand at your fingertips, you get to watch it whenever you want. Now, obviously it's a little different than that. You have to have a VCR and plug in the tape. But you, you get what he was saying in that regard, that, you know, 30 plus years ago, the VHS was this enormous game changer in terms of home entertainment and on the go entertainment. And they tapped into it, right? Because Warren Miller had been around for decades before the VHS came around. But when that happened, 
Dan saw an opportunity and, and, and he you know, grabbed on in that the VHS was going to be uh, this really innovative way to get into people's homes. And it still is, right? I mean, you go into a ski house and there's still Warren Miller movies on the, <laughs> on the shelf there. Um, you know, be, be it DVD or VHS or whatever, they're still there. And so they, they live in people's homes. And that was such a big experience for the extreme skiing scene. Now, extreme skiing wasn't you know, necessarily a sport. I mean, they, they tried to do it with the championships up in Valdez. But really what it was was entertainment. And the VHS really sold that entertainment. And that was a visual way for people to connect with these extreme skiers. Um, in the end, it again, going back to, to, to the, the risks we take thing, it ended up being you know, sort of like a dangerous thing because people wanted to imitate them. You know, John tells this story about where he was at a camp. I, I want to say it was Snow Basin. Maybe it was Alta. I can't remember. And this kid did a leap because he wanted to impress John Egan and landed into a tree. And the, tr- the, the tree punctured his lung. <gasps> wow. And, you know, you're, you're talking about risks you're taking there. And John said at that point, it was kind of like, what am I doing here? What am I preaching to people like this? And I think... You know, we speak about that in the book a lot, that extreme skiing, for all the, the, the glamour it had in the early 80s, kind of took this, you know, little bit of a back step, uh, particularly when people started dying. You know, I think that um, that was a, a big thing to for them to look at and for them to uh, look at them internally and, and say, you know, what are we really doing here? Um, so kind of like a, you know, like the... Uh, the hot dog movement eventually died out. Extreme skiing sort of had the same thing, especially with the championships. You know, once you start judging these things, the freedom of expression sort of goes out. Um, and not that extreme skiing is dead in any way, you know, but hot dogging isn't either. But in terms of their overall popularity, you know, things evolve and things change. Uh, and the VHS really was, you know, the, the way that these skiers were able to market this. You know, the book does such a good job of documenting and capturing all of those dynamics and how that evolved over the years. Um, in, in particular, the the evolution sort of, of of extreme skiing to, I guess, what they would call free skiing today. And I, it, it's always remarkable to me, Eric, when I read through ski magazines or or the videos, listen to podcasts, it's, it's a lot. They talk a lot about progression and progressing the sport, uh, it, but it, that just seems to mean getting ever closer to these more spectacularly incomprehensible tricks. You know, not only it's not enough to leap off a hundred foot cliff, you have to do five backflips when you're doing it. And it's, it seems to be pushing it to this, this insane place from my point of view, it it seems like Dan was almost critical of, of where it's gone. Um, is in compared to, as you said, the sort of entertainment they were doing. Well, yeah, you're jumping off a 30 foot cliff, but you're also doing it into three foot of snow and you've scoped it out. And, um, you know, the sun is out and you have a a nice landing and you're probably not going to kill yourself doing that. Right. Um, is, is Dan's intent in this next book to kind of track that evolution from where he and his brother and, and Scott Schmidt and the others in the eighties and nineties started this to, to where it became. And, and is he sort of reckoning with it or, or, or judging it? Or where's he, where's he going with this? I, I think it's a little bit of both. You know, there, there is definitely some reckoning there. Um, 
but he does have a lot of judgment on it too. You know, it's, and I do too. It, it's, that's part of the reason why when he mentioned the book to me, I was like, yes, let's do it. Because, you know, you look at someone like McConkie and as much as he's renowned and loved, um, what an idiot, right? I mean, how much is too much? And, you know, it's tough for me to say how much is too much when I'm not that person and you're not me, but you know, wife and children, and you still have to, you know, parachute off cliffs. And, and it, it just gets to the point of, you know, bigger, badder, faster, stronger. Okay. But, you know, at some point there just gets to be, you got to be responsible for something, right? I mean, it, it can't just be that, you know, this is your life and the more risks you take, you know, you're, that, that's what defines you. If that's what defines you, then you're going to have a very short life. And if that's your end game, then I guess so be it. But it, ju- it just seems to me that, you know, in terms of where the sport is going and what the sport is doing, you know, it, what's, what's the skiing? You know, what's the skiing of just jumping off the cliff and having a parachute out? I don't get it, right? So I think that, look, it makes great video and it, it's great to watch. Um, but at the risk of watching it and knowing that person could have died, I don't know. You know, it, it's free skiing to me is one thing. I, 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 I get amazed watching Teton videos. Right. But, you know, when it comes to like guys like McConkey and, and the things they pulled and, and the talent they had, um, just on those two sticks alone and watching that is so much fun to do. But then to see it and turn into something that is not really related to skiing and you're risking your life to do it just doesn't connect with me. And I think if you're trying to connect to that audience, that's one thing. But if you're trying to connect to the skiing audience, the skiing's fine, man. Like, we like that. Right. So it, it just it gets to the point where it's like, I don't know. You know, I, I don't know how to answer that because I'm not the one who's going to be jumping off the cliff with the parachute. And I don't really – I can't connect to – that that next step right because the next step for me is i don't know you know get better at tree skiing <laughs> it's, not, <Right. laughs> it's not it's not skiing uh, in valdez or something like that so um you know who am i to judge what someone's next step is i'm not but at the same time i can tell you as a viewer um when someone dies doing something like that you know look it's one thing to die in an avalanche and you're prepared like you know, we had we had a guy from Vermont who died at Tuckerman's last in February, and turns out he was totally prepared. He had everything at his disposal that he should have had. Uh, Ian Forays was his name, mm-hmm. and just wrong place, wrong time, and he suffocated. Um, that's one thing. If you die like that, who am I to say like, well, I shouldn't have been at Tuckerman's. Should should have known. He did know, and he was prepared. Um, look, if you jump off a cliff, you're prepared too, like with a parachute, but at the same time, one risk is one thing. And the other risk is something, you know, to make a name for yourself because you're crazy enough to do this. Uh, Ian Forays was not one of those people. He was just, you know, a prepared person at the wrong place at the wrong time. Big difference dying in that regard than there is, you know, something that Shane McConkie did. So you have a really good perspective on this because you actually spoke with a lot of these extreme skiing pioneers as you were researching this book, or at least they're quoted in the book. So Kristen Almer, Scott Schmidt, Rob Delorier, a bunch of others. Um, talk about reaching out to them and 
what it was like talking to them and how they helped you understand the growth of skiing during these eras. And also the perspective that you just gave on, okay, it went from, yeah, this is crazy. I'm jumping off a 50 foot cliff to this is insane. You're jumping off an 800 foot cliff with a parachute. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been a sports writer for, you know, 20, 25 years. Um, so, you know, walking into a locker room and seeing Tom Brady, that I'm kind of over. That's, that's way in the past. It's not like I get wide eyed. like, Oh my God, look who's here. Um, it was different doing this because I am such a ski buff and I, I, I do love the history of the sport. Uh, so to be able to, to get Scott Schmidt on the, on the, the phone was so cool that I, you know, texted my friend that lives in, in London. I was like, Hey, I'm talking to Scott Schmidt right now. And he's like, Oh my God, you know, like moments like that, like, this is so cool. And I'm talking to Scott Schmidt. I'm talking to Greg Stump. Um, and they were great interviews, you know, and that was the, the fun part about it is that they were all so ready and energetic to talk about this project because one, they all respect Dan, uh, but two, it's their sport and their history of the sport. And I think that, you know, stream skiing has gotten bits and pieces here in terms of history, um, but it hasn't really had it flushed out and connected the way that this did in terms of the hot dogging scene. And I thought that that was a, a great part to be able to do. Um, to get Greg Stumps, uh, which, I, you know, we've all heard how he, he went about doing um, Blizzard of Oz, but to get it, his perspective one-on-one was great. Uh, and to get, you know, Scott Schmidt telling me about, you know, how, you know, he started out and how he was a, you know, a, a high school racer. And that was his intent was to come to Squan to compete for the U.S. Olympic team. Uh, those were great little nuggets that, you know, in, in terms of someone who loves skiing and, and delves into the history uh, was really rich and, and really a lot of fun to do. And as you mentioned, it really grew with the growth of the VCR. And I, what I found so interesting here about Dan's role is that not only was he one of the standout athletes of the era, but he was actually really involved in the distribution. He saw that opportunity. And this guy has a, a pretty awesome business sense. And I don't, I did not appreciate that until I got to that passage in the book. Talk a little bit about how Dan played such a pivotal role in the explosion of ski movies as distributed through VCRs and VHS in the eighties and nineties. Yeah. Well, I mean, Dan went to, went to Babson, got a business degree there and, you know, right out of school was, you know, marketing, marketing, marketing. And it kind of caused a, a li- this was one of the first kind of sort of dynamical rifts between he and John is that John was, you know, laid back, just there to ski. Don't bother me. And Dan was like, let's sell, sell, sell. Um, because Dan, you know, wanted to make a buck. And John was kind of like, eh, I've skied for Warren Miller the past few years. I'm kind of over it, whatnot. And Dan saw the vision of the Egan brothers. You know, as he says, you get two for one. And that was uh, an important part. Now, in terms of the VHS and the VCR, Dan saw opportunity there. And he had John drive him to the, uh, the ski show in, uh, in Las Vegas. And he went in and lo and behold, who's there? But all those representatives he dealt with at the ski market, you know, right. from Nordica, Head, Solomon, you go down the list. And he's able to say, hey, look, we're the Egan brothers. We appeared in this Warren Miller movie. Um, we're going to start our own company and we're going to start skiing in our own movies. Would you like to finance us? And Dan walked out of that meeting and had, I think, three or four deals. 
And that was amazing. John could not believe it, right? Because here's John just laid back, you know, whatever. You take care of the business side. And after an hour, Dan's got four deals paying them to go to Europe and do a slideshow. And I think right from the get-go there, John saw the opportunities like of the Egan brothers as a marketable venture that this was going to work because Dan had the the business sense and the know-how that he didn't. And then, you know, that turned into the Egan brothers, Egan entertainment network. And it turned into uh, Dan editing his own movies uh, very difficultly, by the way, (laughs) he did not have an easy time in the beginning. Um, But Stabbing, taking a stab at that and realizing that there was an open market here uh, and realizing the importance of the VHS and what it meant for, uh, you know, distribution of their name and, and whatnot was, was great for Dan. You know, Dan negotiated with Warren Miller that, you know, Warren Miller, I guess, didn't necessarily see the importance of the VHS in the very beginning. And Dan negotiated the rights of all Warren Miller movies on VHS east of the Mississippi. Um, and that was great, you know, because now Dan's able to get those VHSs in stores and be able to make money off it. Uh, and he created his own little business just from the VCR. And that was all based on, you know, what he learned at Babson and coming out of school there and teaming up with his brother and bing, bam, boom, immediate business. Yeah, Dan had a vision, no question. And you really laid that out well in the book. I uh, talk a little bit more though about that relationship with Warren Miller. Dan was in 14 Warren Miller films over the years. Uh, how important was that relationship to Dan and to his career? Is it? I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Obviously, it is. Uh, it's it's tantamount uh, to his career. Um, he deeply respects Warren Miller and deeply respects um, the man, right? Not just the, the the company and the fame that it brought him. Uh, he he sparked a a special relationship with Warren. Um, he he actually told me he was supposed to be, or he was at one point, Warren wanted him to be the voice of the films uh, later on in life that, you know, obviously Johnny Mosley does. Um, you know, they had that strong relationship between the two of them. Uh, Dan told Warren, you know, he had this vision that he wanted to go where CNN goes. And in the early 90s, that was, you know, everywhere in Europe. And, you know, they went to Yugoslavia and Turkey and Russia and all these places where, you know, they, they jumped off the Berlin Wall, which is, you know, one of their defining images. Um, and Warren bought that, you know, that this is what the Egan brothers can do for me, is that they're going to give me this film from far out places that, that aren't just about, you know, skiing the, the steepest peak, that there's going to be a backstory here in terms of, um, you know, places they've skied, you know, one of the most defining ones is, you know, they're skiing Turkey and they hike up the mountain and there's a helicopter there. Uh, like just images like that, that Dan was intent on getting for Warren that really put them in a different spot in terms of their Warren Miller um, heritage. Uh, you know, every time the phone rang, Dan was there to answer for Warren Miller because who is it? And, you know, the fact that he's in 14 of them is, is testament to, um, you know, one, his relationship with Warren, <clears throat> two, his relationship with uh, whoever's in charge after Warren, and, you know, even up to last year when he appeared in his in his latest one, which was a, a great segment with him and John and Scott. Um, you know, Warren really defined his career and, and helped, you know, make him uh, put his name on the map. You know, without Warren, you know, I don't know what Dan would have done. You know, would Dan have created his own, you know, VHS company and would he have gone into the media business? 
Not sure. You know, I, I think that what Warren brought to the table uh, was very special and, and, and made Dan uh, who he is today and made him the, the face and name that he is today. So Dan had this amazing run as an athlete, a standout athlete in these Warren Miller films. And then obviously the guy can still ski. Like you said, he was in this year's Warren Miller film. Uh, but that at some point that became less of a focus for him. Uh, and, and he had a lot of different business ventures. He led Ski 93 for a while. He, um, you know, he did the ski clinics. Uh, but one thing that really comes through in this book, Eric, is Dan's resilience as a human being. So he loses some jobs. He has some successful business ventures. He has others that peter out. Uh, he gets divorced, which we discussed. And he always seems to find a way to make something new happen. What impressed you about Dan's ability to continually reinvent himself? And what does that say about his personality and character? Yeah, Dan, you know, he has a vision. There's a, there's a forefront there that he's, you know, like, like any entrepreneur, he is not just sitting and saying, okay, that's good. Uh, he's looking forward to something else. And that speaks a lot to uh, his business sense, number one. But two, it speaks to, you know, that he well, can't sit down for more than five minutes, that's for sure. You know, he is, is constantly on the go and constantly looking ahead to, um, you know, what the next best thing might be. You know, first it was the VHS, um, you know, streaming has been a, a big part of, of what he does now in terms of uh, Deegan Media. And he's been doing that for years, um, kind of on the forefront of a lot of that for particularly for collegiate athletes, you know, sailing and, and, and skiing. Um, he's always kind of had this this look at and that doesn't mean he always gets it done. Right. You know, it's one thing to have a vision. It's another thing to get it done. Um, there are lots of things I think that he has a vision for that aren't necessarily, uh, happening right now. Um, you know, I think this book is one thing where we, he needed a, a team member to actually get it off the ground. Uh, but he's always thinking ahead and has this sort of, you know, knowledge about what's next. Um, and, and that is, is, is very impressive in, in terms of, uh, having a, a visionary that can, you know, Maybe everything's not going to be successful, but there's always a look ahead to something that might be. You know, Dan's pretty forthcoming about his struggles in this book with alcohol, uh, with his divorce, the fact that he never became a father. It, it sounds to me from what you're saying that, that Dan, it was not a problem getting Dan to be honest. Were there, were there times when you had to, to, to dial him back or, or what was that conversation like when you decided what to include, what not to, when it comes to these very personal struggles? Yeah, there, there's... Um, one whole stretch um, that I worked on where Dan was possibly too honest <clears throat> and um, too honest in terms of it may have been troubling for him uh, based on the things he was saying and, and um, the way everything turned out. Um, not because he was unfair to other people, but just because it was uh, – sort of a situation where he was telling me too much and it wasn't going to make him look too good and it wasn't going to make other people look too good. And I think in the end, we kind of glossed over it a little bit and decided not to include it in the book because um, it, it just wasn't going to, the dynamic wasn't going to be good for anybody. And I think those situations happened, you know, every now and then where Dan was a little bit too honest or forthcoming. Uh, there are some opinions he had about certain people where, you know, we include them in the book, but they went beyond that in terms of how much he felt about someone. 
Um, a lot of those things we did have to dial him back because, you know, whether the person is alive or dead, uh, you know, we don't want to speak ill will of the dead, but there are some times where that became the case. And, you know, whether we wrote it that way or not, um, you know, definitely did have to take a pause and look, take a look at it and say, you know, what are we really doing here? And does this really help the narrative whatsoever? Uh, so yeah, definitely some situations like that. Well, you cover a lot of ground. Uh, one situation in particular, one job I want to talk about is Dan Stin is GM of Tenney Mountain, which is up in New Hampshire. It's a nice medium-sized ski area. It just has one of those New England stories where it can just never seem to get it right. Uh, it was the only large ski area in New England that did not operate this year explicitly because of COVID. Um, Blanford shut down, but that's permanent. So Tenney intends to come back. So it, it, the, the era that you focus on, it's funny because I was researching this for a different article I wrote a few months ago, and it was the era of the snow magic machine where the, the, we had this grandiose visions of, of making Tenney into this year-round uh, tubing destination where there would always be snow. What can you tell us about that era of Tenney and the snow magic machine and Dan's leadership there? That was one of the most fun chapters to write, actually, because I remember that whole situation. Right. Um, that's the first time I went to interview Dan was at the Boston Ski Show. And I have to say, oh, God, early, early 2000s. And he was the, the, the GM of Tenney at that point. And uh, I couldn't find him. Like we had an appointment set up and, of course, I couldn't find him. But that was the very first time I was actually supposed to sit down with Dan and talk to him. Um, but that whole period is just so crazy because of the, the snow magic machine. And Dan's honest attempt to take Tenny and, and turn it into something special, which he did. You know, he, he did a great job. It's just that sometimes being GM of a mountain that where the situation just is going to fight against you is too much to bear. Um, but for him to be able to be at the forefront of that snow magic machine and to turn into that 4th of July um, extravaganza that made you know, headlines around the world was such a big deal. And it proved that he could get it done. It also, you know, gave a behind the scenes look at how hard a worker Dan is and how he's able to, you know, push, 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 push. Uh, no one tells Dan you can't do this. That's one thing that he doesn't won't deal well with. And if you tell him he can't do it, he's going to prove everything he can that he can do it. And I see a lot of myself in that regard, you know, not to Dan's extent. But if someone tells me I can't do something, oh, watch out. Yeah. You know, because I'm going to try and do it or I'm going to let you know I tried to do it. <laughs> uh, and that, I think, was why I had so much fun writing that chapter was because, you know, here was Dan fighting a constant struggle, whether it be against the machine or the owner or, or whatnot. Um, just just a, a a fun chapter to write because of that period and remembering it that, you know, this this whole snow magic business was such a crazy idea um, that he went to, you know, went down south trying to sell it too. It was was so much fun. And you look at it now and it's like, these machines are, you know, they're, they're doing a pretty good job. You know, I went to a snow magic, uh, event in Dallas, Texas, a couple of years back, the snow was okay. Um, so to, to kind of see the, the forefront of that was, was really interesting. And to kind of dive into that history was interesting. What was the fate of that machine at Tenney? Do you happen to know, is it still sitting there rusting on the slopes? Oh God knows, probably. Yeah. <laughs> there is a lot of stuff at Tenney rusting on the slopes right now. Yeah, well, I hope they get that place back open next year. Um, one final theme that ran through the book was faith. Uh, Dan's faith is very important to him. Can you talk a little bit about that, Eric, and how that influenced the narrative? Yeah, huge. I mean, Dan's Dan's family faith is, um, you know, Irish Catholic in Boston. So, um, 
he's very deep rooted in his Catholic beliefs. And that doesn't mean he's a blind eyed either. Right. Um, when the, uh, the abuse scandal happened in Boston in um, the early 2000s, he recalls to me about how he lashed out at his dad, you know, and saying, how can you believe this? How can you follow an institution like this? And his dad was staunch, you know, it's all the Catholic church, Danny, everything stems from the Catholic church, Danny. And I think he has always held that sort of strong regard for his religion and his faith and spirituality. Um, It really has driven him in terms of, you know, how he has followed his life and that, um, you know, he, he does, you know, he does a, 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 or used to do a weekly, you know, Catholic TV show uh, in New Hampshire. And he's very much um, married to it. And I think the fact that, that he allowed that to be seen um, and how much that faith has driven him, right. And I mean, right up to the, the scene in Elbrus where, He's, you know, seeing the end and he's, you know, comfortable with it, um, speaks a lot to his, you know, his, his faith and where his letterman life. Well, very interesting guy, very multi-layered. Eric did a great job capturing him in the book. Uh, let's Thank shift you. gears here and talk a little bit about the New England Ski Journal. So you are the online editor for the New England Ski Journal. A great newsletter. I really enjoy it every week. Uh, for you. those who aren't familiar with that publication, tell us about it and your role there. Well, New England Ski Journal has been around, uh, God, I want to say 30 years now, uh, from Siemens Media Productions in uh, Quincy, Massachusetts. Uh, I've been writing for the the paper version uh, or magazine version since, I believe, 2011, so probably about 10 years. Um, And last year, um, last year, 2019, Eric, Eric Siemens, the publisher, came to me and wanted me to be the online editor. Uh, I fought him off for a bit, just saying, you know, there's just too much going on. I got three kids. I got a book I'm writing. I'm a teacher. I'm freelancing for the globe. Uh, like I need one more thing in my book. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and he was pretty persistent and eventually asked me to come on board. And I'm kind of glad I did because, um, you know, when I freelance for the globe, it's, you know, once a year, uh, once or twice a year for, for ski content. The ski journal is, you know, three times, three or four times a year for the magazine. And this gave me an opportunity to be really plugged in year round. And that is something I didn't really previously have. Uh, And that's great in terms of being able to keep my fingertip and being able to keep my contacts, Um, you know, being able to cover things like last summer was a a huge year for how COVID affected the industry. Uh, That is not something I would have had on a day-to-day basis without uh, being the online editor at the ski journal. So uh, in that regard, I, I really embrace it. Uh, what the Ski Journal does is, you know, we try to give you a, a glimpse, at least from the magazine perspective. Um, the, the editor there, who's, uh, his name is Don Cameron, uh, really tries to give a perspective of skiing um, throughout the entire region uh, through a number of different categories. We have uh, a much more freer landscape online where we're not tied to any sort of, um, you know, focus, whether it be, uh, you know, what are we going to do for the ski shop section this week or, or this month? Or what are we going to do for the Q&A this month? Or what are we going to do for Tackle the Terrain this month? Um, we're really more wide open in that we can just cover skiing on a day-to-day basis in what is really on the minds of people um, in that particular time. 
know, this year, obviously, it's been a lot of COVID stuff. And over the summer, um, our COVID stuff was really, um, really well read. You know, I think, you know, Eric, uh, Eric Siemens as a publisher wasn't sure if we should really tackle the entire summer um, skiing. And I told him, you know, look, this is on people's minds because people don't know what's going to happen. Um, and I know he was generally surprised and generally pleased when it came out that uh, our, our COVID articles were really getting a lot of attention because people were so focused on or interested or questioning, what, what is my ski pass going to give me? Or what is it going to be like to make reservations? Or do I have to wear a mask the entire time? <clears throat> you know, and obviously we've gotten answers to those, to those sorts of questions. But back in July and August, when, you know, everything was still kind of shut down and ski resorts were open, but, you know, doing zip lines and, 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 and um, chairlift rides and whatnot. But they, this, the winter was still kind of unknown because of the way things ended in March. Um, and that was kind of like, you know, like I said, not having that outlet on a day-to-day basis prior to last year, uh, really makes me happy that I took this gig um, and was able to do the online editing that that uh, Eric had offered. Yeah, you really had some great diverse coverage leading up to to this season and just tackling all elements of it and analyzing it and looking at it and a good mix of sort of opinion on it and and facts and, and boots on the ground journalism, which I'd imagine was probably done via Zoom or phone, but uh, just given our situation, uh, you know, typically the journal focuses a lot on uh, a lot of New Hampshire, um, some Maine, a lot of Vermont. This year, I've noticed you've also included some Massachusetts. I'm wondering, Eric, for you, I know a lot of folks from Boston, they go to New Hampshire. It's so close. Uh, has, has this, has COVID and, and the travel restrictions caused you to reconsider the way that you see Massachusetts skiing and some of the stuff that's right there for you to ski out your back door? Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, I had never been to Berkshire East till this year. Um, and I've always heard stories about how it's a, a real gnarly place, great pitch and great trees. And, uh, you know, I, I say, unfortunately with my air quotes here, unfortunately I had my three kids with me when I went, yeah. uh, I'm going to air quote fortunately too, because I had my three kids with me and was able to ski. Um, mm-hmm. that being said, I have an eight year old, a 10 year old, and a 13 year old, and the eight year old is not as strong as the 10 year old and the 13 year old. And we had a lot of fights and how can we got to wait for her? How can we got to do this? <laughs> So I didn't get to really experience Berkshire East to its fullest, um, but you know it, it did give me a glimpse into the kind of place it is, and it, it's wow, it's a lot bigger than I think I had even anticipated because I had anticipated somewhere big because everyone had said it's a lot bigger than you think, but I think it was even bigger than that. Uh, it was an impressive place, and you know to have that kind of place in our backyard is one thing. Now I say in our backyard, it's it's still two and a half hours to get there from my right. home. So it's not like it's right around the corner. Um, Wachusett takes about 45 minutes. And Wachusett has always been, every time I take the kids there, they love it. Uh, I think, you know, their snowmaking system there that they've had in place for a good, uh, I want to say four or five years now, uh, has really been a game changer in that they were able to operate fully uh, from November on, uh, despite the, the weird winter we've had in Massachusetts. Uh, really a great place. Um, you know, it can be overcrowded. It can get crazy. But I think this year with the the way they've done the four-hour increments um, due to COVID, maybe want to be something they look for in the future because, you know, it gets to be really overrun. And I think that those four-hour increments uh, really help control the crowd. You know, one thing they want to do. And two, you know, I think moving forward, if they did something like that, maybe it doesn't get as crazy there. You know, as the, as the well, I don't want to say closest because Blue Hills is, but the closest... Um, 
the closest biggest ski area to Boston, uh, Wachusett gets overrun on the weekends, and it can be a crazy place. That being said, their snowmaking is so good that it never really gets overskied, and that's a testament to what they've done there. Um, you know, I, I haven't skied a lot in Massachusetts beyond that. You know, I've, I've been to Blue Hills because my son took lessons there, and those were invaluable. They were great. Uh, I've been, I, I skied Mount Tom way back when, but I haven't, you know, I haven't been to Jiminy Peak. I haven't been to Catamount. And this winter, you know, even if it is just Berkshire East so far, has given me that open opportunity to sort of explore uh, what the Bay State has to offer. New Hampshire is, you know, easier to get to, to be honest, than it is to get to Berkshire East. Um, and that, that's just, you know, the nature of the beast. You know, we, my family has had a home in, in the Conway area uh, for you know, 35 years now. And so that's been a second home to me. Um, in the Mount Washington Valley, you know, I learned to ski at Black Mountain, and which is great. I saw this weekend they operated the J Bar, oh, wow. which is you know looks rusty and old, and that's where I learned to ski. And oh, that cool. was it was kind of like looking at it and seeing a a, a flash of memory. Um, when my kids ride the magic carpet when they were taking ski lessons, I'd laugh at them and say, "You should see what <laughs> I learned on." So I was able to show them the picture of it this year uh, or this weekend. Um, and then I went to school in, in, in Vermont um, at St. Michael's College. And from there, I learned the, the joy of, of skiing in Vermont. You know, we, we had this thing called the Big Pass back in 1992, uh, 93, 94, 95, which was for $329, a uh, season pass to Stowe and Sugarbush. Wow. And, oh, yeah. And it was, it was the best because we would just wake up in the morning, drive down 89, and we would take the exit. And sometimes it would be we'd get to the – bottom of the exit before we decided we're going to turn left to go to Stowe. We're going to turn right to go to Sugarbush. And it was always those mornings that, you know, were were a lot of fun and and you knew you were going to be in for a day and a half. Um, And that's when I learned that skiing Vermont is a lot different. You know, it's, it's a lot, it can be colder. uh, It can be gnarlier uh, and it can be more glorious. You know, the, the more snow they get, my God, you know? And so, you know, I, I, I think I've skied almost every ski resort in New England. Um, I'm trying to think of who's missing. Tenny is missing for sure. Um, there's not Suicide Six. You know, there's there's a very select few that I haven't skied at. Um, so, you know, I'm lucky in that opportunity that I was able to, you know, one, have a second home in New Hampshire, and two, my, my other second home in Vermont where, um, you know, once COVID is lifted, you know, I have one more shot to go and then two weeks and I'm free to visit the Green Mountain State. So uh, luckily there, hopefully there'll still be some good spring skiing there by uh, mid-April. Yeah, I think this season has really caused a lot of us to take new explorations. I know, you know, fortunately I'm kind of boxed into New York, but we have more ski areas than anywhere else. And I think I've been to 19 or 20 new ones, which has been a lot of fun and just getting a new perspective on some of those. Um, just curious to your perspective here, Eric, since you're so in this world. Uh, how do you think the season has gone in general, your assessment? Uh, from a personal standpoint, I mean, one, from a personal standpoint, it's been okay. Uh, but that's because we've been trying to follow COVID protocols to the best of our ability. Mm-hmm. Uh, Massachusetts has uh, restrictions in place. You're supposed to quarantine upon return from New Hampshire. Um, so I won't get into whether or not I have skied New Hampshire. Um, but you know in terms of not being able to visit uh vermont that's been kind of a bummer uh you know and and i look i respect and 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 love too many people in vermont to take advantage of that uh 
I know I have some colleagues, I have some acquaintances who have not watched the rules and have just gone to Vermont for day trips and whatnot. And it frustrates me. You know, it really frustrates me that here I am wanting to get there and I just can't because I have too much respect for these people. And frankly, I know too many people to actually say, hey, I'm going to be there and then look at me like, well, what are you doing? Um, you know, a few weeks back, my dad told me, like, why don't you just go and not write about it? And I was like, well, that's not exactly the honesty I'm <laughs> striving for, my dad. Um, but, you know, it's just um, from that perspective, it's been a little difficult. Now, look, like I told you earlier, I do most of my skiing in March and April anyway, because yep. uh, I'm a spring skier by nature. That, that's mm-hmm. just the nature of my beast. Uh, but from an industry standpoint, I don't know what the numbers are, uh, but I know Vermont is probably not doing as well as they hoped. Uh, I know over Christmas time that Adam White of Ski Vermont had said that they were really struggling. Um, you know, now, look, I, I, I wonder if once everyone gets, well, some people get their vaccines, whether we're going to see some increase in Vermont um, and whether we're going to see an increase in bookings. Um, you know, a lot of the people I've spoken with have said, you know, it's, it's been better, I think, than they expected. Um, and I think what they expected was that they had to set limits. And I think a lot of those limits have been met. So I, I think as the industry is concerned, my fear was that we were going to see February vacation and then we were going to see a quick downturn in a lot of resorts, um, because look, we all know that, especially in New England, that once February vacation is there, is done, so many people's minds shift and mm-hmm. they just ignore the fact that you've got the best skiing coming in right. March and April. Uh, that's just that's just how things go. You know, mm-hmm. people get the golf clubs out, and this year I kind of feared that a lot of the mountains were going to take that into regard and shut down early. Uh, to their credit, a lot of places, you know, Killington showed the bumps they uh, the the mounds of snow they had on Superstar in late February, just this weekend. Mm -hmm. And that speaks a lot to the commitment of, you know, selling those spring passes and being able to get people out there. Um, You know, a lot of people have extended their season, you know, Vail to, to my surprise, extended their season at a number of places. Um, Not to, not to what people want, like at a place like Wildcat, you know, where could go into May, Mm -hmm. Uh, but, you know, to see it extended at somewhere like Mount Snow and and Mount Sunapee is extended now too. uh, Was, kind of a surprise and to you know i talked talk with john devivo the gm of canna mountain a few weeks back and he had said you know while uh well, that canon will go till april 12th uh maybe april 18th if the business calls for it but he didn't see it because they were already limited as it was right um so many spring events aren't able to go on that are big money makers i mean look at look at sugarloaf and not having reggae fest and how many people that brought and how many rooms that booked um, so it'll be interesting to see at the end of the season exactly what this did. Um, from the outside, it doesn't look too bad. And from being there, it doesn't look too bad. You know, I, I see crowds. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously, we see the epic crowds that, you know, the, the, the lines are, are something of legend. Right. But, you know, it will scheme be dead next season because of this year? God, no. You know, I, I think that what they were able to do um, was, was very well done. And I think they survived based on um, based on the needs they had to. Uh, you know, so it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I, I think 
regardless of when they shut down, the headline here is they're shutting down on their own will, right? Now, like last right. March where they were all shut down, and it looks like we're going to avoid any kind of shutdowns. Is this the outcome you expected, Eric? It's the outcome I hoped. Right. You know, I, as far as expected, I don't, I don't know. You know, because last March, last March hit us like such a ton of bricks um, that it was, it was difficult to foresee what was going to happen. And so for ski areas to open this year without any big problems, um, and, and everything to, to go so smoothly to see barely any instances of, of COVID fear, uh, really spoke to the precautions I think everyone took and really spoke to, I think a lot of the, the, the duties that people had, you know, of, you know, making sure that other people were following the rules and, and helping them understand that, look, if you break this or you complain about this or you don't do this, it's going to mean bad news for all of us. And those people are out there, you know, we've seen them, we've seen them, we've heard from them, we've read them. Um, you know, those people that just disregard the rules and want to, you know, take their own accord. Uh, you know, I, I guess they got their skiing in so good for them. Yeah. You know, for the rest of us, I think there's a little bit of a, a bit of, um, I, I guess, personal pride in terms of being able to do the right thing and feeling like, um, we helped out in the end. Yeah, I, I can tell you I've been missing Vermont this year, but, uh, but you know, it's a lot of these little places I'm going to. The reason I hadn't been to them before, uh, these five, 600 vertical places is, yeah. you know, Oak Mountain. It's a fine little ski area, 600 vertical feet in the Southern right. Adirondacks. It's the same distance for me as Stratton, you know, <laughs> with yeah. that great lift system and all the glades and the 2000 vertical feet. So that's why I hadn't been before. Would I have rather gone to Stratton? Probably. Am I glad I got the opportunity to explore Oak? Yes. And, and yeah, I do take a little, and some pride in the fact that, that I obeyed the rules and, and, uh, and I'll be back to Vermont next year. It's not going anywhere. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, all right, before I let you go, Eric, I really want to get your opinion on multi-passes because I really think they're reshaping the ski landscape in new England. So if you just go back five years, no Epic pass, no icon pass in the Northeast, all of a sudden Vail buys Stowe, they buy triple peaks, which is Okemo, Sunapi and, uh, Crested Butte, uh, peak resorts, which was 17 mountains. Then the Icon Pass came along, brought Sunday River, Sugarloaf, Loon, Killington, Sugarbush, Stratton all together on a pass. Um, and now we have the Indy Pass with access to a dozen New England resorts, including JP, Cannon, Waterville Valley, Saddleback. Do you like these big passes? Do you think they're good for New England skiing and New England skiers? You know, I my first big pass was the American Ski Company way back when. Um, and I, I love that thing. But I also understood the problems it, it, it brought, right? Um, that at such a low price, I can't remember, I think it was like three ninety nine way back then. Um, you're getting, you're basically selling, basically like selling the, the season pass at Walmart, right? Like mm -hmm. everybody's buying it because of its affordability. Right. I think that that's somewhat of a situation, particularly with the Epic pass, um, is that everyone's buying it because of its affordability. Um, lesser so with Icon. Um, are they good or bad for the sport, though? I mean, I, I think, first of all, people like to complain, right? Mm -hmm. we, know, we all know that. Mm -hmm. And I think when it comes to Vail, there's this knee-jerk reaction to complain about everything. Right. Um, you know, do I, do I appreciate everything that Vail does for the sport? No. God, no. Uh, I think the first time I actually went to the actual Vail ticket counter and looked at the prices, I was like, whoa. Um, <laughs> Luckily, my, my buddy had a two for one coupon and we were right. able to see that day. But, you know, Good I think that, that now. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> yo, God, yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, the, the way that they have set up their their system is great for the person who wants to ski all winter, right? You pay 700 bucks or whatever it is for the Epic Pass and you get to ski all winter. Uh, you have the chance to go out west. I mean, that's originally why I bought it a couple of years ago is we were going to go to Park City for a week and uh, I figured let's buy the Epic Pass now and and that way we don't have to, you know, pay daily ticket rates out there. And I'll get to ski in New England as well. Stowe, I, I, if I have a season pass to Stowe, which used to be, what, two grand mm-hmm. for that much money? Yep. Money. Or just Stowe. Um, and I think, you know, in, a, in, a, in some ways that speaks to Stowe in particular um, what I was just speaking about with the, with the American Ski Company is that Stowe used to have this $2,000 season pass and it was um, an elite mountain, right? And now it's an epic mountain. And it does tend to get sort of overskied every now and then. Um, and then you have different personalities that come out. Uh, you know, recently I've been seeing people complain on Wildcat's Facebook page about them not grooming and that we should really be grooming this section. We should really be grooming the... And it makes me laugh. Like, yeah, it's Wildcat, <laughs> man. <laughs> groom Wildcat? Like, get out of here. <laughs> Who are you people? Uh, Go to Okimo. <laughs> yeah. And, and, seeing, <laughs> and seeing constantly people complain about the triple chairlift at Atatash. And it's like, where have you been the past 15, 20 years? Like, right. this has always been an issue. Like, it, it's bringing new people into the sport and bringing people, um, you know, from a place like North Conway. It, it They love it because it's bringing in tons of revenue to the restaurants and the hotels and whatnot. Um, so in that regard, I think the Epic Pass is great. And if the Epic Pass and the Icon were in any way, you know, you know well, I know they were, but if they were in any way responsible for the creation of what Doug Fish did with the Indy Pass, then I think they're great for the sport because I think what the Indy Pass has really done has, um, you know, att- attracted a lot of people to places they would never think of. Um, like I told you, I grew up skiing on Black Mountain, and yep. that's a that's a place real near and dear to my heart. Uh, last time I was there was last February after a, a powder dump, and we all know what that place is like after that. It is, yep. it will work you to the core. It is, <laughs> it is, it is a place to behold after a powder dump. Um, and I think a lot of people didn't know about that. You know, in to me, that's a little surprising because I grew up with it, and it was, it's in my memory. Um, so to have people experience a place like that is so special, I think, to the sport um, in New England and in its heritage, you know, to learn about how important a place like Black is to the Mount Washington Valley and New Hampshire and skiing in general. Um, super important. And to have people visit a place like Magic, who, you know, they may not visit otherwise, but they bought this pass for 200 bucks. So let's go visit it. And that, you know... I can't speak for everyone else, but when I visit someplace and it really connects with me, I want to go back there. Yep. I, I want I want to go visit it again, and I want to experience it. And whether or not that's with the, the because I have the pass, or it's because I want to buy a, a day ticket for my kids to go there the next time, I think that the, a pass like that really helps spread the sport. Um, you know, will there be more people joining the Indy Pass? I don't know. You know, I think they're pretty much tapped out now. Will the price go up? Yeah, but how much further is it going to go up for 200 bucks, right? And how much further is it going to go up from 99 bucks to the kids' pass? Um, you know, that that's something that I think that creation has really helped balance things in terms of the mega pass, 
in the Indy Pass. And I think that, that having that has really helped um, make a great dynamic in, in terms of the variety of skiing that people can do, uh, if not just in New England, you know, nationwide, and having this freedom of choice. Now, you know, if you're a day person and you go to the Adatash window and you just want to buy a ticket for the day, <laughs> and your jaw drops to the floor, then I don't think it's so great, right? You got to right. be prepared. And I think a lot of people aren't prepared on the season. Um, so in that regard, I think that, you know, it, it, it's tough for the person who, quote unquote, goes skiing uh, as opposed to, quote unquote, the skier. Um, how we fix that, I don't know if Vail really wants to, um, but I think it's something that need, people need to be aware of uh, when they're making their plans. Yeah, Eric, I, I got to tell you, I think we're far from done with what this thing's going to look like when it all sorts out. I, you know, I think the Indy pass is pretty close to filling up. I think there's probably room for a competitor. Um, I, there's, there's a lot of mountains in the Northeast and and I think they're all going to end up in some kind of coalition or another, except for very singular places like Mad River Glen. It's just kind of like, eh, you know what? We don't need it. Um, but they have that attitude too. You know, I I don't know if they would ever want to just because, you know, that defines them. You know, just being kind of the, the brazen, you know, bad kid on the block is what Mad River Glen has made its reputation on. And they don't want to change that. Yeah. All right, Eric. Well, I really appreciate your perspective on this and everything else. Uh, really excited for that book to, to come out. Well, it's already out. Uh, tell, tell us, where can we get the book? Uh, you can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, and you can go to our website, white-haze.com uh, and order it directly there. Um, it should start being in bookstores, uh, soon. We've got a, we, we've self-published the book. Um, so we've got to start marketing ourselves, which is, uh, something Dan was originally, uh, wanting from the start. You know, we sat down, I said, well, the first thing we had to do is, is find an editor and find a publisher. And he was like, no, we should self-publish the book. Cause that way we have total control. So now we have total control of the book and we've got to start the marketing ourselves, which is, uh, on the one hand, nerve wracking, um, but on the other hand, really exciting because, you know, we have full reign of where to bring this book and tell people about it and, and try to get people interested in, in purchasing it. And then New England Ski Journal, there's an online, the newsletter I was referring to earlier, and then there's a magazine. How do folks subscribe to each of those? Uh, they can just go to uh, skijournal.com. You can do both right there in the uh, the right-hand corner. There's a link to the magazine and there's a link to the newsletter. Um there is also a, uh, a TV show that runs on New England Sports Network uh, monthly. And I believe this is the final installment that's currently running. Um, and we'll start back up in the summer, I believe. Excellent. And you have a pretty big Twitter following, Eric. Is that the best place for people to follow you for updates? Or do you, do you have uh, other places? Uh, where should folks follow you? Yeah, that's probably the best place. Uh, it's, it's at Globe Eric Wilbur on Twitter. And it's also at globe, Eric Wilbur on Facebook. Um, either place, just drop me a line. Uh, I can get back to you. Uh, email is E Wilbs, E W I L B S at yahoo.com. Um, feel free to drop me a line and let me know what you think. Eric, I cannot thank you enough for your time today. I know I took way more time than I promised. Um, and I, I know you have some other stuff coming up, so thank you for hanging on. Uh, thanks for talking about the book, really exciting project. Congratulations on all of it. I'm going to look forward to talking to you soon. So it was a pleasure. Thanks for all you do. Um, I look forward to your newsletter every week as well. And um, it, it's it's great that you have, uh, have found this niche. Your, your podcast is, you know, uh, up near the top of, of all the ski podcasts that I listen to. 
Um, and the way that you, uh, your, your detail and your research into uh, passes and the industry uh, is really top notch. So uh, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Well, thanks so much, Eric. It's great we got, finally got to connect. That's Eric Wilbur, co-author of 30 Years in a White Haze and online editor of New England Ski Journal. I love talking to journalists. I'm not trying to make anyone happy. They're just going to tell you what they think. I've got to do more episodes like that. Awesome job with that, Eric. That can't be the last time we do that. I recommend that you subscribe to the New England Ski Journal newsletter at skijournal.com. Check out the print magazine, too. And they have a great TV show hosted by Meredith Gorman that you can watch online. While you're online, click over to stormskiing.com and subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter. Vale is dropping Epic Pass details on Tuesday, and you know I'm going to go deep on that. You can also follow the storm on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester. I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.